The Speaking of Cults podcast is presented solely for general informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from it is at the user's own risk. The views, information, or opinions expressed by the host and guests are solely those of the individuals involved and do not constitute medical or other professional advice. Hello and welcome to Speaking of Cults, uh, my new podcast here, and uh, we're just kind of still getting used to the title and and uh, and imaging and branding and all of that in the new year here as we're moving forward. But I uh, am still very, very hot on cults, on coercive control, on abuse and trauma and how we deal with these things. That is uh, uh, what this podcast is all about. And as uh, you know here this week, I am welcoming back. Now she was on my Sensibly Speaking. Now she's on this one. And here is Dr. Laura Anderson. Uh, hi, Dr. Laura. <laughs> Welcome. Hello. <laughs> oh, I was so glad to get the invitation because I was like, we we did have such a good conversation last time and there were so many different areas we could have gotten. So I was like, this is good. I love it. So I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm very happy to have you back. You are yeah. a wonderful guest. And Thank your you. book, uh, When Religion Hurts People, yeah. this was recently published. Do you want to yes. just kind of drop a little blurb on this for yeah. people so they know what this is about? There it is. Yep. Yeah. So it's actually called When Religion Hurts You, Healing yes. from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High Control Religion. So this came out mid-October 2023, and it's been pretty wild. But, uh, you know, I... I want to be um, kind of open to say that what we talk about in here doesn't necessarily remain exclusive to religion or high control religion. It includes all sorts of fundamentalism, high control groups, coercive control, cults. They all kind of play from the same playbook. And so, um, yeah, so this is it's it kind of addresses all of that. And that's why I wanted to make sure I included high control religion in the title, because I think that's where people can really kind of see an easy crossover. But yeah, I, I talk a lot about what is trauma, what is, you know, spiritual and religious abuse, adverse religious experiences, the nervous system. And then the bulk of the book is really talking about what does it look like to actually heal from systems like that? Um, I know probably part of our conversation will be how do we make sure that we're not just, you know, kind of cult hopping, right? Or right. fundamentalist hopping, just hopping from one system of controlling thinking to another. And um, yeah. And so there's a lot of that in there. Of course, you know, I, I base this off of my own doctoral research um, and I pulled from there. So it is scientifically backed, which I really appreciate. And yeah. And then there's a ton of also like anecdotal stuff, stuff for my client sessions, that I've learned, you know, from people that I've come in contact with, and of course my own story. And so I've been so humbled at the reception that it's received because, you know, as a writer, you're like, gosh, you know, is anybody going to like this? You know, is it going to make an impact? <laughs> and so to, to hear even just one person who's like, wow, this was so meaningful in this way, it, it, that makes the whole process worth it. So I'm thrilled and it can be purchased wherever books are bought. So when religion hurts you, uh, it's excellent. Yeah, it's out and available. Good. Well, there yeah. it is, folks. And I really do recommend this. Uh, in fact, we're going to get into a little bit of some 
some stuff in that book later on in the episode here today. Um, cause this is really important stuff. Religion is, is a widespread phenomenon in the world to say the least. Mm -hmm. Uh, it is the source of, uh, fantastic amounts of joy and catharsis and healing for people. But at the same time, as we see in international events right now, it can be uh, contributory toward an awful lot of awful. And so it's not a matter of a black and white, well, it's all good or it's all bad. That's not that's not the approach here. The approach is when it does hurt people, when it does become traumatizing, what do you do? How do you deal with that? You know, can it and and for some people, it's a revelation to learn that they have been being dramatized and that they have been being abused in the name of help and compassion and and faith. And so, this can be very confusing for people because it mixes all of the strongest of our emotions in the highs and the lows. I mean, is that, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I feel like trauma is like what we might call like a core wounding or a core, you know, um, injury where it really hits us on a soul level. And I don't mean that in necessarily in like a religious sense, but like to the core, the essence of who we are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and then it has, these really kind of robust impacts that can last a very, very long time. So I think that's very accurate to say in terms of the, the long lasting impact and in, in how it, how it works. Yeah. It's not about necessarily being anti-religion, but it's understanding how that can really impact us in a negative and harmful way. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's a, uh, I mean, the, 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 just to beat the dead horse all the way down to the ground is, is, you know, it's like, we all need water to survive, right? We all need right. it, right? We do. Mm -hmm. You can't live without it. You'll literally die within days if you don't have yeah. it. Yeah. Yet you can drink too much of it and die too. <laughs> that is true. Much, yes. Right? You can get too much. <laughs> and so if you want to think about religion that way, I don't care, right? As, yeah. a, as, as long as we kind of get yeah. the connect the dots here that it can harm people as well as hurt people, as well as help yeah. people. And, yeah. and yeah. that's what we want to focus on here because we're all about healing here mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, get, and moving yeah. on past this stuff. So um, yeah. so on that happy note, I, I'd like to ask you first, because um, we talked in general terms about trauma and recovery mm -hmm. and, and, and religion in our first episode. Mm -hmm. And so so without necessarily having to you know retread all that, I thought maybe we might talk a little bit more detail today about how is it that when you are a believer or you know a mm -hmm. theist or a, you know a evangelical or a Scientologist mm -hmm. or a Mormon or it doesn't really matter if you're a believer, mm -hmm. right? Whatever the system is. Yeah. How can you tell? How could what should you be looking mm -hmm. for, thinking about? What are the what are the things that tell you? You know, you have yellow flags, maybe in red flags, mm -hmm. right? Of, yes. of abuse or trauma yeah. or fear induction or you know the stuff that goes on. How do you yeah. spot that before it yeah. goes off the rails? Yeah. Well, the first thing I like to say with this is so. Part of the way I even got into understanding religious trauma was through the lens of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Mm. There is some really wonderful research out there on dynamics of power and control in relationships. And I realized this, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 years ago when I was getting out of a domestically violent relationship and I was looking at my journals as I had written about various experiences and I could not tell who said what to me? Was this my abusive partner or was this the God that I followed or the church leaders that I was following? It was very interesting to be like, okay, 
you know, this person said I'm unworthy, What? but so did this person, right? And, you know, and, and I was able to start to see some links between why it was not difficult for me to accept abusive behavior from my partner because I had already been conditioned to believe all of these things as a result of religion. And so I... I want to name that because I did draw from a lot of that research in understanding dynamics of power and control, coercive control, group behavior. And so with that, I always like to say, you know, when I work with people um, that in like domestic violence settings, you know, they always say, well, why didn't you just leave? And I think that happens so often with cults in high control religion and things like that, too. And I oftentimes say that is actually the wrong question to be asking, because when we start to understand the dynamics of power and control that are a part of a relationship or a group, it's not about just leaving. It's it's about understanding the psychological damage, the emotional, relational, social, physical damage. It's not just breaking up. It is your entire identity to be a part of these groups. And so- we do know now how to spot some of these behaviors, but the problem with this, uh, not only, you know, not only the abuse, of course, that's a problem, but the, the problem with this is that it isn't necessarily overt. So if you think about an abusive relationship, say, you know, you go on a date with somebody, um, and they start screaming at the server and they flip over the table and they, you know, start punching people you are probably not going on a second date with that person, right? <laughs> like very overt behavior. But in most cases, domestically violent and abusive relationships do not start that way. Same with high control groups and cults and religions. You don't walk in and they say, oh, by the way, we're going to need this much money from you. And you can't be friends with these people. And you have to only believe these things and not believe these other things. And you must dress this way and talk this way and not watch these movies and only listen to this music. They don't start with that. They start with what we call this love bombing phase, which is very similar in relationships. And so it's in gratiating yourself, endearing yourself. You know, we're so glad to have you here, you know, and they start to speak this language that's meeting very, very human needs that we have for connection and community and stability and certainty, a sense of purpose, right? And that appeals to our humanity. And so, we buy it, not because we are weak-minded or because we're like interested in being controlled, but because most high control groups understand basic human need and they prey upon that. Um, and so, so there's the beginning of what that is. So when we say like, how do we notice, you know, if we're in these groups, you know, we can look at the beginning and say, hey, how did we get into this group in the first place? You know, were these, were there these dynamics that we might call like love bombing where, you know, promises were made? There was kind of a fantasy, a picture created, right? Um, but a lot of people don't necessarily you know, they're like, oh, that no, that's, that's nothing, right? Like that, that actually, that's what I want to get back to. Like, that was the greatest time in my life was to have all these people that were like, yes, we'll meet your needs and, you know, whatever. But over time, we notice it in groups and in relationships, like the honeymoon never lasts. 
that's just, right? It just never lasts. And we start to see the tension building. We start to see little rules being created. We start to see more consequence in you for making mistakes. It's not just like, oh, you're, you're a new believer. You, you know, that, that was just a mistake. It's like, Hey, if you want to be a true believer, you better watch yourself. Right. And over time, little by little, we start to notice that areas of control are, are kind of taking over what that group was. And so I, I, there is, there's a, kind of universal document created by the Duluth project as it pertains to domestic violence. And it's called Mm -hmm. the power, the power and control wheel. So I built off of that concept and I created what I call the religious power and control wheel, but you could substitute religious for fundamentalist, cult, high control, coercive, whatever it's in my book. It's in the very back. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's like page two thirteen. if anybody has it. And I do reference it in the book. But the, what is helpful about this is there's eight different categories of different types of behaviors. And so they're in categories such as isolation, minimizing, denying, and blaming, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, threats, accusations, and intimidation, economic control, sexuality and gender defining, and loss of autonomy. And under each one of those categories, I do give some examples. So isolation might be things like cutting relationships off with people that are outside of the system. Uh, Information control. Here's what you can listen to and read. Here's what you can't. Um, Having to report back for how you spend your time and money and resources. Um, Devaluing people that are not a part of the group. Things like that. Minimizing, denying, and blaming might be like saying, oh, that didn't happen. You're making too big of a deal of this. Victim blaming, calling them quote unquote sin issues or ego issues versus the actual abuse that is happening. Um, and so we look at that and we start to go, oh, like the, this is how we might be able to tell kind of in a more overt way, if there are these dynamics of power and control happening. Now, I think what can become so sticky about this, and we see this in domestic violence relationships too, is that on the outset we go, well, I mean, I've done some of those things before and that's true right? I've minimized things. I've denied things. I've, you know, blamed people for things. I've manipulated people. I've used my privilege in different ways. And so oftentimes we look at that and we're like, well, I did that too. So can I really speak out about it in this other context? Like maybe they didn't mean to, you know, we give a lot of excuses, a lot of flexibility because we understand that this can be like maybe poor behavior, but it can be behavior that a lot of people do. And so we write it off. But what we look for in terms of uh, dynamics of power and control in systems or relationships is that these things are happening persistently and consistently over time. They're building on one another. Um, if those issues are brought up where it's like, hey, you're really minimizing this. Um, they're, you know, if it's not handled in a way where there's like, you know, looking at it, being curious, that sort of thing. That's where we might need to start to take notice. Like, are they minimizing the minimizing, you know, are they taking responsibility? And if the answers are no, that's where we start to see like, wow, maybe these are areas of control. Um, I always like to say like, you know, what would happen if you pushed back? So what would you, what would happen if you said, you know, I'm not going to spend my time or money there, or I'm not going to um, abide by your dress code or, you know, and, and watch what happens 
How do they push back? Is there space to show up as yourself? What happens if and when somebody tries to leave that group? What happens then? Right. We know like fair gaming um, and, you know, like or how I grew up, it's like, well, you're cut off. The devil has, you know, the devil can get you and whatever happens to you happens to you. You know, and so there's a lot of like justification of abusive, harassing behaviors, you know, um, and so we look at that too. We go, okay, what happens if somebody leaves? And that can oftentimes clue us into like, is this a group that really thrives on these dynamics of power and control? So there's the tip of the iceberg, but also a soapbox. <laughs> no, it's awesome. No, that was great. Because because uh, all those points on that wheel are a hundred percent. And I was thinking to myself some examples that fit right into those things. And I thought, well, there it is, right? I mean, even that, even um, I mean, whole. You know, every line you were reading or every little bit you were talking about could be, you know, practically an entire podcast episode laying out or describing or or elaborating on how those manifest. I mean, when Mm -hmm. you talk about losing um, or or the nature of your relationships changes with people who are not members of this group or aren't in this relationship or aren't part of your gang or Mm -hmm. club, then you know, that the nature of it changes become more negative and you can sort of stop every now and again and sort of a, do a little assessment of your relationships, your friends, your, who, who am I talking to these days? Who am I, who have I dumped? Who have I not talked to in quite a while and why? You know, yeah. this, these little things that will occur mm-hmm. to you from time to time that you, that it does, I think, uh, help to mm-hmm. stop and you know, smell those roses, look around, take a, take a, take a, yeah. a, a look at yourself yeah. now versus how you were a year ago, two years, three years ago. Mm-hmm. What's the nature of things, right? Have you mm-hmm. eschewed a bunch of people or, or burned bridges because the yeah. group or the person told you to, or because it mm-hmm. seemed like the right thing to do at the time because they didn't really like what you were doing? Yeah. 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 And I think another thing, especially when it comes to religions in particular, there's always this eternal component. So like there's an eternity that you are either trying to avoid or go to. (laughs) And so, you know, like we look at groups, you know, like, um, fraternities and sororities where it's like, we dress the same and we, you know, like, okay. So what's the difference between that? And then like, you know, Scientology or fundamentalism, whatever, whatever that is. And it's like, well, okay. If you wear the blue skirt on the day that you're supposed to wear the pink skirt, you're probably not going to be banished from the group. You are probably not going to, you know, have to live in hell, you know, and where we, and we go, okay, these other groups, there are major eternal consequences as if you step out of what they have prescribed. And on top of that, they have a spiritual figure, like a God, a higher power that has somehow said, this is what my will is. And so now if I don't do it, there's also a higher power that I have to answer to. And subsequently there's, you know, a pastor or a leader or, you know, some tiny little short man, you know, who, <laughs> you know, who that all this so all this power, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. he's the voice of God or Zenu or That's whatever. Right. And, and so then, you know, if, 
if I go against what he says, not only am I going against God's prophet or whatever, I'm also going against this higher power. And so there is so much more consequence, eternal consequence, even for not being, you know, following the rules and the prescriptions exactly as followed. Whereas, you know, with other certain groups, we, we don't see that. We don't usually see that happening in a fraternity or a sorority or Girl Scouts or, you know, anything like that. So I think that can be another defining factor to start looking at is, you know, just that, that hierarchy of power and the eternity of consequence. Oh, perfect. Absolutely true. It's funny you actually brought that word out of all of the ones to use because that's exactly the word Scientology uses, right? Is if you leave, you're throwing away your eternity. Yes. As though yeah. it's this thing you have and you're going to just like toss it and it's gone now. And up, oh, mm -hmm. guess you're not going to live into eternity in yes. this, you know, uh, wonderful state of existence that, that yeah. you know, that, that you're, you're aspiring to. You're going to lose all that. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and people ask, you know, I, I, I haven't. Uh, why didn't you just walk out? Why didn't you just leave? Yeah. Why didn't you, you know, whether yeah. it's domestic or whether it's a cult or whatever. And one of the reasons people leave, just to be blunt, is not only or won't leave is not only because they are so sold on the belief set or the culture of it. And it's and it's absolutely fulfilling their needs. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. But often they're flat out threatened. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. if you leave. There are going to be these consequences and it yeah. can be physical or spiritual. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When we look at it, um, and I think this applies in systems as well as relationships, when we go, why does somebody stay in, in something like that? There's kind of like six core reasons that people will stay. I, I put three of them kind of together, like hope, dreams, and possibilities. We stay because of that. I hope that it will get better. We have dreams of what this could be. Um, we look back at like, oh, we had this love bombing time where it was so wonderful and my needs were being met. And if I could just do more, repent more, whatever, and get back to that, then everything is going to be okay. And we stay for hope, streams, and possibilities. We stay because we are living in a space of denial, which is usually a coping mechanism. But we're going, oh, you know, there's no perfect church. There's no perfect people. This happens. It's not really that bad. They're not hitting me. The, you know, like everybody makes mistakes, right? We have this kind of denial that we can kind of live in. Um, and, and we stay because of that. We stay because of love. Because I truly love these people that I'm with. I love this church that I'm a part of. I love this greater good or this cause or this higher power. And I I don't know if I can have access to that outside of this group. Um, and of course, then we stay out of fear. And that's what you were kind of just alluding to there. It's like, what would happen to me if I were to leave? In a lot of cases in high control groups, we're not looking about, oh, now I just don't have somewhere to go on a Sunday morning. We're going, I've lost my community. I have potentially lost my finances. I have lost my ability to work because maybe I don't have skills that are marketable outside of this system. In many cases, we lose friends and we lose family and we lose community. Um, and we've lost ourselves, you know, and there's, there's a lot of fear in all of that. And it, sometimes that feels so overwhelming, like the unknown feels so overwhelming that we would rather stay in something that feels familiar, even if it's fairly dysfunctional. Um, and so we, and we, when you look at it from that perspective, we go, 
well, yeah, that would actually make a lot of sense why somebody would stay because those are huge hurdles to come over or to get over. Um, and so, so that's why I always say it takes an extremely brave person to leave a system or a relationship like this. It is not somebody who is weak-minded or half-hearted. Like they are brilliant and strong and courageous. And I think it's so important that every person knows that if you've left a relationship like this, a, uh, a system like this, you have done incredibly brave work and that should not be missed. Um, yeah, we need to folk, we need to have that always. It's like, yep, that, that happened. And, and I, I'm, I'm a courageous person because of it. That's right. That's a really good point. Um, yeah. cause we tend to be really down on ourselves. Uh, you know, when we first uh, wake up quote unquote, right. And get out. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to ask, I want to get to that stage, but I want to ask first about something that happens that we don't necessarily talk about or frame this way very often, but I think you might be uniquely, because of your expertise and skills in this area with religion, I think you might be um, able to answer this. And that is, as it's not a, it's not, okay, you come in and here's 20 tons of trauma and we're going to dump it all on your head all at once. Yeah. And then you're going to be here for 20 years and then you're going to finally get sick of it and leave. It's a gradual process, right? And we talk yes. about how they gradually introduce the awful to you over time and condition you. It's the boiling frog kind of thing. Yep. Yep. But I'm wondering, okay, so they are traumatizing you, right? They're creating emotional impacts that are, that are damaging or destructive to you. And we carry this around, right? And this is the source of, of worry and stress and anxiety that we can experience. But because we're living in this sort of denial when we're in the group or relationship, because this person is so wonderful, this group is so amazing, right? There's a balancing act between, okay, we're not feeling so great, yeah. but we're feeling wonderful, right? And it's this mm -hmm. like bouncing back and forth mm -hmm. thing, or we're reminding yeah. ourselves constantly that we're supposed to feel wonderful. And we do little things to remind ourselves of how wonderful yeah. it used to feel. Mm -hmm. So this, so yeah. in a way, I guess I'm suggesting there's this sort of um, accumulating trauma. <laughs> over sure. Time, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what mm -hmm. does that do to a person physically yeah. and psychologically? Yes. So I can't remember how in depth we got about this in our last episode, but I believe we talked at least loosely about PTSD versus CPTSD. Does that yeah. ring a bell? Yeah. Okay. So when I talk about that with people, um, PTSD is what we would call single incident trauma. So this thing happened, this experience happened, but there was a clear beginning and an end to that. And then, you know, we kind of go along in life. Complex trauma is going to be ongoing, persistent, consistent, inescapable threat and overwhelm for very long periods of time. And it may not necessarily be these big incidences, but it is kind of what you're describing of like these almost like grading at you things that are consistently happening. I usually put kind of like uh, religious trauma trauma from cults, fundamentalism in that second category of complex trauma. Now there can be 
single incident trauma, of course, within that, right? We see clergy sexual abuse. We see instances of physical assault. We see a lot, you know, like very awful things, incidences that happen. And so we can't have both of them, but more often than not, we have people that are really fitting that diagnosis of complex trauma where they're like, gosh, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't like this one big thing that happened to me. It was this over time. And this was just the way of life. And this was what was quote unquote normal. And this was just my everyday. This is who I learned who I was, you know? And so I use that language because I think that that often resonates with people because in a therapeutic sense, when we're, when I'm working with somebody that has PTSD, so that single incident trauma, it is actually kind of therapeutically much easier to work with Uh that person and resolve that trauma because we're working on a specific moment in time versus the person who has so many moments that there's absolutely no way we can get to all of those in a clinical setting. Um, and I fit in that category too. So I don't want people to be like, Oh, that's a judgment or anything like, no, 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 no. that's me. I'm telling you my diagnosis is CPTSD. Um, and so, but, but what we have to realize then is that in that every aspect of us is impacted. Now, I certainly want to be clear to say religion does not always result in trauma. Cults do not always result in trauma. However, they can. Right. <laughs> and right. in many cases they do. And, or maybe it doesn't result in trauma, but maybe it does result in other mental health uh, disorders and diseases and diagnoses. So yeah, religion cult does not equal trauma, but it certainly can. And when it does, it most often is that complex trauma where we are working kind of from a different space of um, learning how to resolve how that lives in our body and recover in a different way. Um, I use the word integration a lot. It's, it's about kind of this daily living um, and, and bringing ourselves constantly into the present moment. Nope. I'm not back there. I'm here. Um, And that's, you know, there, there's a lot more exploration to do in that, but that's just kind of the high level piece that when we're talking religious trauma, where it's usually complex trauma and, and we use modalities for that. Um, and they, they seem to be helpful. Awesome. Awesome. No, that's a great explanation. Thank you for that. Um, because there's a couple of concepts there that were communicated. I think are really super important for where I want to go next with this, which is, mm-hmm. okay. So, you know, you are normalizing behavior that is absolutely not normal. And you have to do that to live in the denial. You have to make excuses and make excuses and rationalize why it's okay that this is happening, why you're locked up in a room writing down all of your crimes on a ream of paper because you really deserve this, right? Because it's good for you because this is something Mm -hmm. you're going to, this is going to help you spiritually, even if it feels like complete and utter shit right now. And that's the kind of thing Scientology would do to you, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and other high control groups, they they do, they literally do that stuff to you. Yes. Uh, and you get into a headspace where you believe this is a deserved action, that it's on you that this is happening. And that's the, what I mean by normalizing it is you is you come up with reasons why, no, this is perfectly normal and this is exactly what I should be doing. When in mm-hmm. fact, it's a completely traumatizing and completely abusive situation you should yes. be connected with. But when we get to that place, it can be really hard when we finally break away. And we've had this repeating pattern 
of abusive behavior, this complex PTSD laid in. Mm-hmm. I, I've certainly experienced that as well, right? And it has this whole band of symptoms yeah. that come with it, with the nightmares and the terror and the anxiety and the yeah. you know, the, the yeah. stress over things that you shouldn't even have to be stressing over, but you are, all this mm-hmm. stuff, right? Yeah. We don't recognize it because we've been working so hard for so long to normalize it that we don't, that we have now adapted to having this condition or having this problem and we don't even see it for what it is. And so I'm, mm-hmm. so we're here sitting here defining it, talking about it. Yeah. I'm wondering, um, this seems to be one of the problems mm-hmm. in just getting a person who comes out of a situation like this to even mm-hmm. recognize there is lasting a problem. problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about all that? Yeah. I very much agree I, for real. I mean, I I'm thinking of a, a session I had with a client where they were describing uh, abuse that they had endured both in the family home as well as religion. And then they started to see it in, you know, uh, romantic relationships, kind of this hindsight thing, like, oh, this is what happened here and here and here. And I, I asked them one day, I said, I, I'm sorry, does your definition of love include assault? And they looked at me and they said, doesn't it? Like, isn't, isn't that part of what love is? And, and I, and it was like one of these shocking moments, um, because this was the first time that this person had recognized or had, you know, been able to receive a message like abuse and love do not go together. Right. (laughs) And, and I wish I could say that was an isolated incident, but that happens over and over and over with my clients and with people I talk to through social media and colleagues and friends and and all these things where there is just this like complete unawareness that what I have been experiencing is not what we might consider normal, quote unquote, or healthy behavior. These aren't like conducive to actual healthy relationships and autonomy and, you know, differentiation and things like that. But but yeah, we've we've never been taught anything different. When I work with clients of domestic violence, I know I keep bringing this up, but there's no, no, so many good. crossovers. Yeah, there are. One of the things that we work on the the very first is what does it mean to have my own voice? Literally, right? Because the voice of their abuser is often so loud or in this case we might say the church or the the group is so loud. So when I want to do something or say something, it's their voice that's in my ear going, no, 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 you caused this. No, 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 you're wrong, right? And so one of the things we start with first is just getting curious about whose voice is that? Is that actually my voice or is it possible because that's that's the key there. We always have to start with the possible, the softest way that possible that we can go. Is it possible that it could be somebody else's voice, right? Just even giving ourselves that little room for curiosity. Sometimes that can be too much. Sometimes we were like, nope, I I can't even go there. But oftentimes that's a safer way to start. Is it possible that maybe that's somebody else's voice? And what we start working towards is if that's somebody else's voice, then what is your voice? What do you think? What do you feel like bringing back a sense of self because the self capital S self has to be shut down completely and fragmented, cut off 
in groups and relationships like this. And so we start on that little piece of getting that part of self back, my own voice. And and I actually encourage my clients, do not actually start using your voice. Like that can be a very dangerous thing. We need to get to a point where then you feel safe enough to use your voice, where if you do push back, um, that we're not actually putting you in a more dangerous situation. Um, and so there is kind of a, a safety protocol that I really work with, with a lot of my clients, but we do start there because that voice of that person or those people can be so incredibly loud that we mistake it for our own. It's a concept called interojection where we, so we know projection is like when I take my emotions or thoughts or feel and I, and I put them on you and I'd be like, maybe I'm confused. And I'm like, Oh, well, Chris, you seem very confused. Right. And so I'm putting that on to you. Interjection works the other way where I take what somebody else is saying about me and I internalize it to such a degree that I believe it is actually coming from within me. So for me, that looked like you're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. Turned into I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I am not worthy. Right. And so, yeah. And so that's what we do a little challenging work there. We, we get some curiosity. We try to create some space between who I am and what that message is. And in that space is where we get to work. That's where we start to go, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if I actually was born into this world believing that I wasn't worthy, you know, and that can be a really beautiful moment. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's a great breakdown of that. And I want to ask a little bit more about something you said there, because it's the first time mm-hmm. I've heard it put this way. And, I, and I'm and i curious about what you have to say about this regarding this self is broken up. Mm-hmm. You, you described how the self is not a whole. It's broken into all these little pieces. Yes. Could you elaborate on that concept? Yeah. Um, I'm drawing from the work here of Janina Fisher, who's an amazing therapist and researcher. She wrote a book um, called healing the, healing the selves of the trauma survivors or healing the fragmented selves of the trauma survivors. I can't remember exactly the title, but what she recognizes in it is that when we are in these situations of threat and overwhelm, we have to cut off parts of ourselves, kind of what she would say is fragment ourselves and live out of these tiny parts for survival sake. So maybe that's like a a part of us that's really able to please and ingratiate ourselves towards others or a part, you know, that kind of this little kid part, meek and mild and, you know, or we kind of fragment our, because the whole self can't show up. That's not okay. Who I am is not okay. Just this little part of me is okay in a situation like this, or this other little part of me is okay in a situation like this. And so we end up living out of fragments of ourselves versus the whole self. And so I really look at trauma healing work is learning how to bring those pieces back together to integrate those and live from a sense of wholeness to, and and really have to build that from the ground up for most people, because they've never been able to actually just show up as themselves, especially for people that are, you know, born into groups like these, you know, they learn from a very young age, here is what is okay and not okay about me. And, and so it really is like a reparenting almost of bringing those pieces back together um, to create a version of capital S self. 
Oh, I love that. The reason I love that yeah. so much is because it feels to me, from my way of thinking and looking at myself, my own recovery, and helping other people, you know, with the way that I try to do, that there's this model out there, which is fine. It's a perfectly fine model. This is no criticism of it. You know, there's this mm-hmm. thing called the bite model, which uh, which uh, Dr. Yeah. Steve Hassan has put together. And you have mm-hmm. this as a as a sort of an action model of behavior control and thought control and mm-hmm. emotional yeah, control emotion. and information yeah. control, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he talks about any 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 his sort of core uh, concept with recovery is the pre-cult personality and how you mm-hmm. want to come back to that and, yes. and, and, and sort of, um, you know, unlearn or, or take away or get back mm-hmm. to that, that earlier personality of who you mm-hmm. really are kind of thing. But yeah. honestly, to me, what you just described is a more accurate rendition of, I think what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because especially for second gens, because we don't have any pre-cult personality. What the hell does that even mean? When you're born yeah. into the group or all your living memories are being part mm-hmm. of the group, there mm-hmm. is no pre-cult personality. But the idea that there are different aspects of your personality that you are mm-hmm. okay or it's acceptable to show, and mm-hmm. there are other aspects of your personality that you have to suppress the crap out of, mm-hmm. that yeah. is 100% an accurate description of my lived experience. And so I mm-hmm. go, yep, that's yeah. it. Yeah. I like yeah. that. I think that's something we should talk more about. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I when I read her book and and now I'm like, okay, it is actually called Healing the Fragmented Selves of the Trauma Survivor, Janina Fisher. It it reads a bit like a textbook, but it's not a boring textbook. I will say that. <laughs> but um whenever I read that, it really was like a puzzle coming together, like puzzle pieces fitting together. And I was like, and it was funny. I actually looked back in my journals and I was like, like, how did I not see that? Right. Like I was writing this, like a part of me feels like this and the other part of me feels like that. And I feel right. Like these opposing things and whatever. And so then to have her language and just kind of clinical understanding of how like dissociation is a very much a coping mechanism. And, and when we fragment, we're dissociating ourselves or disassociating ourselves. Right. And when it was so like, I just remember having this giant exhale as I was reading her book because I was like, well, first of all, damn, my body did an amazing job of keeping me alive in some really awful situations, but also there's nothing wrong with me. It's just that I learned how to cope in a broken system that, you know, I was never, I never should have had to be in, in a, in the first place. And so my body just needs to catch up a little bit. And so we can start to realize, Hey, we're not back there, you know, and, and that obviously it's not as simple as that, but it does offer us, it gives us an invitation towards compassion, uh, to remove the shame from this, this thing and to go, truly, who am I? Because I agree with you. Most of us do not have the pre-cult personality. And I think that um, while that model may work for people that, you know, grew up, got into a cult, got out, um, it doesn't always speak to that that piece of like, who am I? Um, Because this is all I've ever been. And so it's not a matter of coming back. It's a matter of figuring out, you know, and and unlocking those pieces of us that we've never actually been able to explore. Um, So, yeah, Uh, I I love the language that she created around that. That's great. I'm definitely using that in the future. 
yeah. uh, fractured self. I think uh, yeah. that's that that'll that'll do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> self. I'm writing that down right now. Because uh, this has no this has legs. This is really good. I'm gonna be able to use this to to try to to help the you know, second gens with this. Yeah. Um, and on that note, moving forward into the recovery phase of this stuff, right? Okay, yeah. so there's a thing that I've noticed that you and I were talking about before the show where without getting into a whole role on this, it's just I noticed that there are conflicts that can happen between people when they come out of cults, right? And they and they carry the cult language or the cult thinking or the cult mentalities with them. And this is often used in a very, it's noticeable and it's a phenomenon mm-hmm. lots of people notice, mm-hmm. but they only notice it to a degree that they use it to insult people. Oh, well, you can take the guy out of the cult, but you can't take the cult out of the guy. Mm-hmm. And it's write off. It's a thought, it becomes a thought stopping cliche of, oh, well, once in a cult, always in a cult. It's an excuse to write people off. I don't, I don't want to go there. That's not what I'm talking about yeah. here. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it, but it's a legit statement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How is that? Yeah. <laughs> so I taught, I actually call this embodied fundamentalism. Oh. <laughs> um, so I, I do actually have a term for it. Wow. Um, yeah. So the way I describe it is this, when we are in a high control group, yeah. uh, I use the word fundamentalism here because fundamentalism is all about prescriptive thinking, acting, relating how I exist in the world. There's, it's very binary. There's right and wrong. That's a very fundamentalist attitude. And here is what you have to do to be good. And then everything else is bad. So, um, most high control groups, that that is how they operate is from a very fundamentalist standpoint. So when we're in a group like that, we are not taught how to think. We are only taught what to think. We are not given tools to be critical thinkers, to be curious, to hold multiple um, opinions and realities. There is, it's very much one right way. This is it. If you don't believe this, you are not a part of our group, right? So we have to believe that too. Then again, get to continue those basic human needs being met, community, connection, things like that. So they're overriding, you know, some of these innate abilities to be curious and, you know, have multiple relationships with multiple different people and, you know, whatever that are different from us. Um, They take it and they say, nope, that's wrong. Here's just the that you live. So let's say you're like, you know what? I'm done. I do not believe this stuff anymore. I'm going out into the world. If we do not take the time to understand not only what we have believed, but how those beliefs live inside our bodies, what we are prone to do is recreate an an cult hop or fundamentalist hop where we move into other groups that are doing the exact same thing, just with a different message. So I see this often in social media spaces of former uh, religious groups, whether it's ex-Mormon, ex-JW, ex-Scientologists, ex-Evangelicals, ex-Fundamentalists, where we go, okay, I'm out and, you know, trying to figure out what happened to me. And we're with all these other traumatized people that are, everybody's like wildly triggering everybody else, not because we're trying to be malicious, but because we literally have no idea a, how to find safety within ourselves, but B, like how to relate to others 
in any way outside of outside of the system. And so what ends up happening then is we we do we build hierarchies and we we set people up on pedestals and we have certain things that you must believe and must do in order to be a safe person or you know a person who's truly deconstructed from that group. Yeah. And and we put a lot of rules and parameters around it that just mirrors everything that we've been a part of. And, and I have much compassion for that because I go, I mean, you're trying, you're really trying, but we haven't understood the way that those things are embodied in us. And so we're just hurting each other even more, uh, even with our best of intentions, we end up hurting each other and ourselves more. And that's why we see, um, you know, I, I call them kabooms, um, in these groups where it's like everything, you know, and it's, and then we're all kind of like whiplashed, taken back of like, what just happened? I don't feel particularly safe. Um, I feel, you know, very hurt. I feel very similar to how I did while I was in that group, but I thought I had left that group and, and who can I trust? And, and I think so much of it is because we've still outsourced our locus of control. We've still outsourced who we listen to. We've still said there's a, a perfect path forward that we have to we have to go on and we have to follow these rules and take these stances. And if we don't, there's something wrong with us or, or we're not an ally. That's a big one. You know, if you don't mm -hmm. believe these things, you're not an ally uh, to this or that group. And so I think it's so common that these things are recreated. Um, and then we see like really the harm that comes out of them. Uh, and again, I do want to emphasize this is not because people are probably even trying to be controlling. It's mm -hmm. just that is all they know in their bodies is to create sets of rules and follow them and then tell everybody else that you should follow this too. Um, because this is the right way now to live. And um, yeah, I have a lot of compassion um, and it's also not healthy. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. That dynamic is not healthy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's the worst because it's because yeah. because it really is a manifestation, or it really looks like. Yeah. You yeah. left the cult, but you didn't. Right. You know, you're still yes. acting like you're in the cult, but your beliefs uh -huh. are different, but your actions are still the same. Yes. And why would they be any different if you haven't learned right. new habits? If you haven't yeah. learned new ways of dealing with things, if you haven't examined why and what it was in that group or relationship that kept you there, that motivated you to stay there, that mm -hmm. finally, what was the breaking point and why was that your breaking point? Mm -hmm. Really yeah. breaking this stuff down for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, it's worth the time. Yeah. It's only you, yeah. you know, it's only, it's mm -hmm. only, it's only re, yeah. you know, that whole reintegrating yourself. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, and unfortunately we find people who will turn to alternative solutions for this because of either their own, you know, self-destructive tendencies or because mm -hmm. the cult taught them or indoctrinated them yeah. that, 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 you know, they get out of the cult and it's like, especially with groups like Scientology, where well, the last thing I'm going to go do is see a psych. Right. Right. Yes. Evil. Yes. And they must be destroyed. And you've believed yes. that for so many years. Mm -hmm. Even yeah. if you come out of the group, it's yeah. an unquestioning belief. Yes. Unquestioning yes. belief. Yes. We, how, how have you seen, I mean, obviously people who show up on your doorstep mm -hmm. are seeking help. 
But, yes. but what about those people yeah. out there who who kind of are like, you know, nah, you know, drugs, yeah. alcohol, other solutions are doing me just fine. Mm-hmm. What? How do you deal yeah. with that? Yeah, that's hard because, you know, when we talk about like information control and, you know, really othering people outside of your group, I think in so many ways, like the cycle, the psychology field is like the first target that you go after, because these are the people that are asking you to tap into yourself instead of outsourcing, right? So of course we would be the dangerous people. And so I think that, you know, if there's, First of all, I want to say it it seems entirely normal to me that there would be hesitations. Should I go to a therapist or not? Because here's all the reasons that I've been taught that this is not a safe thing or that a therapist is going to try to change me or or whatnot. Um, and I would say, like, examine that. Is that your, so we go back to that concept of interjection. Did I, was I actually born with the belief that a psychologist or a therapist or a counselor is an evil person who's out to try and harm me and take captive of me? Or was that belief put there by somebody else? And if it was put there by somebody else, what are the other possibilities? Are there other possibilities that, what if they're wrong? And if they are wrong, then what, right? Um, and and I would say too, one of the, the one of the beautiful parts about social media is the access that we have to, in some ways, some free therapy. Not entirely therapy, but but you know, you can go online and you can look. Here's what a trauma therapist says about this or that. Here's what a therapist who understands cult behavior says about this. And perhaps I can kind of ease my way into that by going, "Wow, this person actually isn't telling me what to think. They're not telling me that they." have the solutions. In fact, they're actually asking me to turn inwards and to see what is right for me. Um, and, and that might be a soft entry point into finding additional support. Um, and you know, I, I do therapy and coaching and for a myriad of reasons, I prefer coaching, but the Mm -hmm. one thing that I don't like about coaching is that there's not an oversight board. There's no ethical codes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I, though I don't love all the rules of like the ethics, you know, and everything like that in, in oversight, it does provide a sense of safety for the client, the do no harm part. I love that piece about it. Uh, there's many other things about therapy that I don't prefer, which is why I do coaching, but What I'll say to that is a good therapist, a good coach, a good supporter is very uninterested in you believing like they do and doing life like they do. I have no interest whatsoever in having my clients become many, many little clones of me. That would be, first of all, that would be so boring. And, you know, like we don't need that, right? (laughs) Like, What I am interested in is walking alongside you as you figure out who you are and lean into that more. And so that means that if you decide to continue being a part of a religion or a faith group or a spiritual practice or not at all, or whatever decision is like, I want to help lean into that with you if that is the choice you are making for yourself. And so I think that then looking for a support person that you could trust to do that with you is really important. Um, And to know that like ethically, 
we are not allowed to like share, you know, we, we're not like, well, you know, what you really need to do is what I do. Like, that's not an ethical therapist (laughs) if that's what they're doing. Yeah. 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 And so, so, you know, there are therapists out there who are like that, who will say, well, you know, I think this is, here's what you have to do. This is what the right thing is. Um, be careful of those therapists. That's what I would say. Um, but I think there's a lot of other really well-meaning and interested therapists who are going, I just want to help you. And, um, I, I don't really care if you, if we have matching values, morals, actions, like I want you to live the fullest of your own life and your own choosing. So I think it's a process like anything. And I, I think it's really hard to seek out that help when you have been taught. I mean, hell, like I was, uh, in the process of getting my license, as a therapist and still had some of those beliefs about therapists, about my own profession, you know, and really having to overcome that and, uh, and to say like, actually, no, this is, this is okay. Like this is, this can be a really good thing. And in fact, it is leading me back home to myself. Um, and that can't, that too can feel scary coming out of a high control group. Uh, when we've been taught that the self is untrustworthy and, um, you know, we, we, it's evil, we cannot, you know, depend on ourselves. And so then to have somebody pointing you back to yourself can be like, uh, I, I don't know. Um, but I think ultimately that is what leads to freedom for yourself and also freedom for others. Oh, absolutely. I, I, wow. That was great. That was awesome. That was a great answer. Um, <laughs> Because it's a, you just nailing it again and again and again on that. Um, it, it's really interesting to me, and in, in thinking about what you're saying and examining my own experience in Scientology in and out of it, how many uh, negations, I'll say, are entered into your thinking, self-negations are entered into your thinking. Yeah as a result of being part of these high control groups where there's all these little mantras, there's all these little sayings and everything that are always devaluing you, your opinions, your ideas don't matter. It's the cult leaders. And if you disagree, it's always going to default to what the cult leader said or did Uh, always a hundred percent of the time. And and that framing is really important because it's exactly, I I love how you put it because it's, it's, it's the therapist role is not model yourself after me. That's yeah. the cult model. Yes. Yes. That's exactly yeah. what a cult is, is it's a guy mm-hmm. or a woman or a group of people saying, y'all are doing it wrong. Yes. You got to act me. like us. Right? Yeah. 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 And, and the ther- and a good therapy, and this is a great way to judge this, uh, mm-hmm. because I think to myself right now about some therapists who I have really strong disagreements with who will mm-hmm. use their faith as the basis yeah. of their therapy or mm-hmm. their counseling approach, right? And mm-hmm. it's all about reading Bible quotes and, you know, you're not yes. accepting Jesus into your life. And that's the reason why you're not recovering from this cult situation. Mm-hmm. I have very, very strong ethical, uh, yes. you know, problems yeah. with with that yeah. approach. And yet there's mm-hmm. a ton of people who do it. Mm-hmm. But if you're, but the whole problem, but the reason I have a problem with yeah. it actually is exactly what you just described so well, right? Yeah. It's yeah. They're presenting themselves as the yes. model for your good behavior and mm-hmm. no one else is the model for your good behavior. Yeah. You need to figure that out. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It is pretty wild. I, I sometimes ask, I, I teach, uh, 
undergraduate psychology classes that I, I sometimes just, I really like to challenge my students to think outside the box. And so I will say, you know, cause they'll say, oh, well, here's like the right thing. You know, this is, this is like a common human belief. It's just what the truth is. And, and this is how it should be applied in your life. And, and I'll say, okay, so what happens when you have the client who comes in and says, yes, I actually believe that the same as you, but I apply it in this way. Who's right? Right. Because you both said you believe the same thing, but you have two different applications of this and it stumps them. And they're like, I mean, I know that I'm not supposed to say I'm right, <laughs> but I've never considered that before. Right. right. You know, and um, and oh. so it's it's kind of fun to mess with them a little bit. But I'm but I, I'm really <laughs> I, I always tell them, like, I'm just trying to prepare you for like literal humans, like like literally working with humans. Um and, and they always end up appreciating that because they are really challenged to look outside their own biases and what has been normal to them. And, um, yeah, I just, I think that it's so important to prioritize that in finding support, whether that is through a therapist or a coach or a consultant or some other support person, somebody who holds space for you and can say, yeah, like. I'm so happy you found something that works for you and let's lean further into that. No, it actually doesn't matter what I think, you know, I want to know what you think. Right. Yeah. And, um, and who doesn't take opportunities to try to create a dynamic of control within that relationship. Yeah. Exactly. Cause that's kind of where that kind of is leaning toward and could very easily cross over yes. into if, mm-hmm. um, if you're not careful. Yes. You know, that, yeah. th- this relationship, this 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 client therapist mm-hmm. relationship thing is is so tender. You know, it can be because yeah. it's not just a social relationship. Right. It's, it's right. got rules and it's got mm-hmm. things that that you know mm-hmm. structures to it. Yes. Um. And uh. And it doesn't always have to feel like it does. I mean, I've had very right. very you know yeah uh wonderfully emotive conversations with my therapist yeah yeah uh, not well, about our personal I mean, lives <laughs> yeah never about I, mean, I don't know anything about yeah. my therapist's personal life you know <laughs> and I shouldn't I, yeah. you know yeah. that kind of thing, right I mean, I think about like, I just had a a session with a client recently where I know their entire history, right? I've worked with them for a long time. This huge history of trauma, a a very um, abusive marital relationship that they were able to get out of and do so much healing work and um, got engaged to a wonderful partner over, you know, the holiday weekend or whatever. It came as a total surprise to them and, um, And I, like, I started crying in the session because I was so happy because I, I know the pain that was worked through. And I know how many moments of hard stuff and suffering they had to deal with and how difficult it was to be in a healthy relationship at first when all they had ever experienced was just pain and abuse and that their persistence is what got them to this point to be with this person who is incredible, you know? And, um, and so it's like, those are, those are very human relationship moments. Um, and I think that it's really beautiful. I love having those moments as, um, as a therapist and with my clients and, um, yeah, I, I, 
yeah, I could say. <laughs> I totally yeah. get it. No, I totally <laughs> believe me. I understand. Yeah. I've, uh, I've, yeah. I've, 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 I again, I don't do therapy. I do consultations, yeah. but yes, totally been yeah. there, done that, totally it's, right. Because you, because it's, yeah. it's what you're doing it for. It's the whole core of the reason why you're doing it is to help yeah. people. You know. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's great work. It's so much fun to do when you when you have breakthroughs and, and help. People. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's moments like that that you live for. And you're just like, oh, I, I'm not a parent. And um, I so I, I and I'll never have my own children, you know, biological children. But I'm like, I imagine this is what it would be like yeah. when you see your kid who you've like been, you know, living with for the last 18 years and they're launching off and you're just so freaking proud of them because you're like, you did this, like you got there. And it's just, it's like the best feeling ever. I love it. It's, it's worth every painful, hard moment to that, you know, that I grieve with them over. I cry in those moments too. And so it's beautiful to have celebratory tears because they, I just, I, I love watching people have that and it it is so part of the human experience Mm, totally totally um i think we've covered some good stuff today yeah lots of ground is covered yeah Uh, yeah i think we're i think i I think we'll maybe move toward wrapping up but i i you know i i it's not that i don't have anything else to talk to you about it's that i said i don't want to overload my audience with too much stuff because there's so much stuff here and this is really good stuff um, because yeah. this is really super relevant to our communities. And I mm-hmm. and I want to, and I hope that that's coming across in what we're talking about today, that that there are the individual, the healing, the understanding, yeah. the 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 integration, as you I I, I call it acclimation, same concept, sure. right? Yes. The, the coming mm-hmm. back and in, into uh, a social groups in a healthy way or trying to at yeah. least and trying to mm-hmm. figure that out and bumping into ego problems and disagreements and then the real world stuff that just blows it all up ideological differences especially these days mm-hmm. and we blow things up and we make them so important and because in the cult all that stuff was super yes. important and in the real yes. world guess what it ain't mm-hmm. but we act yeah. like it is yes you know? yeah yes so anything yeah. I can do to try to, you know, throw some water onto some of those flames mm-hmm. I'm trying to do here, you know? Yeah, so, I love it. <laughs> thank you for your help today, Laura. It was yeah. really fun talking to you. Oh, it's always a joy to be able to have conversations like this. So thank you for having me back on. You bet. You bet. And um, and again, let's plug this thing. Where do people yes. find you and where do they yes. find your book? Okay. So my book, again, When Religion Hurts You is... Uh, available for purchase anywhere you buy books. Uh, and also there, I should say there is an audio version as well. Um, you can find me. My website is drlauraeanderson.com. That's also my Instagram handle, Dr. Laura E. Anderson. I have TikTok at the same thing. I just don't totally know how to use it. Um, it. Which is why (laughs) I have a social media person who does. Um, so I suppose you can also find me there. Um, and then my company is the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. We are trauma coaches. Um, everybody has a background in mental health and may or may not have had a license at one time, but has advanced trauma training. And so we use the coaching modality for a variety of reasons, uh, not least of which is that we are then able to see clients from all over the world. And one of the benefits to what I believe one of the benefits to uh, the company is that 
all of us understand dynamics of power and control, cults, religious trauma, adverse religious experiences, fundamentalism. So we start at a baseline of not having to convince us that what happened to you was that bad. We already know. And you don't have to pay us to educate. We don't have, you don't have to pay us to educate for you to educate us on what actually happened. And that tends to be a very, a drawing point because then we can actually just jump into the work um, in a really meaningful way. And so that is trauma resolution and recovery.com, or you can find us on Instagram at trauma resolution and recovery. There you go. Okay. And you'll find links to those things in the show notes here. So uh, you can uh, go right to that and check those things out. Her site is quite awesome, actually. And she's got some great resources there. So do check that out if I say so myself. Um, All right. So again, Laura, thank you very much for Mm. your time. Really appreciate it. And um, and I'm sure we will maybe talk again. (laughs) (laughs) that'd be great thank you all right folks out there uh, if you're not subscribed please do so and uh share and love and uh all of that uh my work here and of course uh you can contact me for consultation and you can also support the show uh paypal pay you know buy me a coffee whatever all the links below thank you very much for coming around and i'll see you guys next week bye-bye